Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. These days, we're studying the world of Jesus, and we hope to get you thinking about old stories in a new way. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road. We're so happy that you're here with this podcast. And for the next few episodes, I'm going to take you to a place that's far from Galilee and far from Jerusalem, but still the world of Jesus. And I want to remind you that you can send me questions. I'm starting to hear from lots of you, which is really a lot of fun, at rwebster at saint-lukes.com. If you're listening on the podcast, spell out saint, rwebster at saint-lukes.com. And I'll try to incorporate questions into future podcasts, or at least and get us talking with each other. Hey, I want to show you a picture of Corinth uh, as we see it today. These are the ruins of ancient Corinth. Uh, And this is where we're going to go uh, for the next few podcasts. Corinth was a Roman city in the eastern Mediterranean, and sometime around the year 51, uh, somewhere, that's that's really pretty close, between a year or before, a year after, somewhere around 51, Paul uh, walked into the city on the second of three loops that we call his missionary journeys. He would stay there 18 months, and we know this from the book of Acts, chapter 18, and he would begin a movement that we will now call the world of Jesus in a place far away. But first, let's look at the place. I've got a Google Earth picture of Corinth. You can actually find it on a map today. It sits on an isthmus, which means that it was very wealthy. It had two ports. Uh, It sat on an isthmus between the Aegean Sea and then the Ionian Sea, which heads into the Mediterranean, and people would ship there back and forth and back and forth and back and forth at some point in their history, even dragging boats over land uh, so that they would avoid sailing around that peninsula, and it just made them lots and lots and lots of money. Now, Like other cities in this part of the world, Corinth was destroyed by the Romans as they expanded their empire, the year 146 B.C. to be precise, but it gave rise to a legend that speaks to the wealth of the place. Uh, The legend is the legend of Corinthian bronze, which was a highly prized metal in the world of Jesus, Corinthian bronze, but the origin of it came from the destruction of the city. It worked like this. When the Romans set fire to the place, there were so many precious metals adorning the buildings and the altars of Corinth that they all ran into the street. And so by accident, quite by accident, this alloy of gold and copper and silver came together to form Corinthian bronze. We're even told that one of the doors of Herod's temple, which we learned about in prior podcasts, would be adorned uh, or police plated uh, with Corinthian bronze, which connects Corinth with the world of Jesus in another way as well. Hey, I've got a drawing behind me of a map that we'll use from time to time. I mean, I just put it on my whiteboard. But what we're going to be doing is looking at Paul's second loop through the eastern Mediterranean. And we'll pretty much start with the count that we have in Acts chapter chapter 16 through Acts 18, which goes from in Europe for the first time into the region of Macedonia to Philippi through Thessaloniki, or Thessalonica as they called it then, down south to a place called Berea to Athens, and then finally on to Corinth. That's where we're going to be uh, headed as we, as, we, as we journey in this new world of Jesus together. And hey, I need to say something just as a primer for those of you who might not know. Okay, the book of Acts is a sequel to Luke in the New Testament. So there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. And it's a shame that John's in the middle because Luke is a seamless transition. I mean, excuse me, Acts is a seamless transition after Luke. And so Acts is about Paul. 
The letters in the backs of our Bible, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, which we will look at closely, uh, those are the letters by Paul. So Acts is about Paul, the letters are by Paul. And so if I go back and forth and back and forth, it helps to remember uh, those two. I also want to show you a model of the city or an illustration of what we think Corinth might have looked like. Can you notice now the big colonnaded structure in the middle uh, and all that's left of the ruins in the first picture that I showed you? That's the first thing I want you to notice, uh, this grand temple in the center. The second thing I want you to notice is how packed that city was. Um, It didn't take long to rebuild after the Romans destroyed it. It took about a hundred years, but because it sat in that prime location in terms of the two ports, it quickly became wealthy again, and it was actually the capital of that part of the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, It was the capital of the region, and it was densely packed. Actually, most Roman cities were packed this way, and I want you to think more Bangladesh and less Manhattan, if you will, uh, with many, many people per square foot. A a good analogy for this might be, uh, imagine the village around our church, which is the village of Crestline, which hosts about, what, 20,000, 30,000 people, having 200,000 people in it. That'll give you an idea of how everybody was on top of each other, Uh, sanitation, uh, not so good, and everybody knew everybody's business. The point I want to make this morning, however, is not only was Corinth packed, everybody was from somewhere else. Displacement was very, very common in the Roman world. It started with all that conquest, right, around 150 years before Jesus' birth, all the conquest, all the expansion. You had enslaved people or displaced people, and you've had people moving to places like Corinth for economic opportunity. But what added up is in the year 51, when Paul arrived there, is a town with an identity crisis, they have an identity crisis. They don't know who they are. They, they longed, they were from somewhere else, and they longed for their old religions, and they longed for their old food, but the local gods were territorial gods. They were hometown gods. They were ancestral gods, and they didn't live there anymore. We discussed this development in prior podcast when we talked about God's people being taken into exile into Babylon. The great crisis of that exile was that God's people worried that they had been cut off from from access, if you will, to Judea's God, to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They worried because they lost the temple in Jerusalem that they were now adrift and without a God. And what they learned in exile is that God was not merely located in the land of Judea or even the temple in Jerusalem, but rather God over all. They were able to move from an idea of monolatry into monotheism, a universal idea of them standing under a God who loved them no matter where they might be. A little, a little something is, is like this is happening here in Corinth. They had sanctioned Roman gods that were available to them, including the big temple in the middle of the, of the city of Corinth, which would be the temple to Apollo. But these gods offered very little comfort. They were more of a civic uh, duty, if you will, especially the gods that represented the emperor and the emperor's family. Judaism was certainly known in, in Corinth, and, and it was certainly revered, but it was largely seen as another ethnic tribal religion. It was something for them. It was certainly admired and studied, uh, but it was not a religion uh, for, for Romans outside of the blood of, of the Hebrews, which means that they were ready. They had an identity crisis, and they were ready. They were ready for a story that located their hopes and their fears and their dreams under heaven. They needed a God who loved them. They needed to know that they belonged to a new community. 
And along came Paul in the year 51. Okay, I want to show you another little picture. You know, I like to play a game called a get. This is a Bema, uh, these, these bricks that are stacked here. This is a really cool get, but I need to tell you that gets are hard to find when you're looking uh, in the travels of Paul, when you're looking for the world of Jesus. Uh, okay, a get is when you could look at something and then you can look at Scripture. So the bricks that you're seeing right now uh, are found in Acts chapter 18, verses 12 through 16. Abema is a raised place for a magistrate. In this case, Gallio, proconsul of Achaia, is presiding over a trial of Paul. So Paul stood looking at those bricks while he was on trial. Now, we'll talk more about all the trouble and the mayhem uh, that would happen to Paul as he traveled around. Uh, but this is a pretty cool uh, little get because you're looking at something that Paul saw. Now, we call these trips that he looped around missionary journeys because churches were started there, and this would, be the, this would be the cause of the mayhem, right? He would stir up trouble by causing a movement that went into the face of, of the Roman status quo. But I like to call them business trips and not missionary trips. It helps me to get my mind around what Paul was about and also applying the gospel to our own lives. I call them three business trips for a couple of reasons. One... The Romans did not allow, in a place like Corinth or any, anywhere in the Roman world, would not allow any unauthorized um, gatherings. This is part of the reason why they brought him before that Bema and, and Gallio, the proconsul, and Paul escaped on that one in, in Acts chapter 18. Uh, the Romans didn't allow that kind of stuff, but they did allow trade associations, much like a lodge, uh, much like a civic club, around business. So the first churches were actually born in the context of business relationships. Uh, Paul had a business. Now, by tradition, and, and from our Sunday school days, we were taught that Paul was a tent maker. I wonder sometimes if that was a, a beautiful legend so that we could be sure that we don't pay our clergy too much money. If Paul's willing to be a humble tent maker, uh, we, we should be able to hang our, hang our shingle in some humble trade, if you will, uh, as clergy. However, I'm, I, the more I know about Paul, the more I read about Paul, look carefully at the text, even listen to Paul, the more I'm convinced that Paul was a person of means. Uh, first of all, he had Roman citizenship. Paul always had two names. Let's also dispense with the Sunday school notion that Paul started as a man named Saul and abandoned his religion uh, when he became something else. No, he, he was always Saul and Paul, or Paulus. Paulus was his Roman name. Paul had Roman citizenship, which was something that would only be afforded to a family with means, and that was something that was given to him by his parents. He had a good education. He studied in Jerusalem, which means that he, had a, he was a prep school kid, and he could read Hebrew when most of the world could only read Greek. And then finally, he had friends like Priscilla and Aquila, who we'll meet again in future episodes in Acts chapter 18, who were people with money. They were Hebrew people living in exile in Corinth from Rome. So all these add up is that Paul was a pretty influential guy. Um, speaking of gets, I want to show you another one that I think confirms where I'm going with this. This little inscription stone just comes up out of the mud in the grass of Corinth. It's fascinating. It, it's overlooked by a lot of people because it's just right there in the grass, but it's very, very, very important because it has the name Erastus on it. This too is a get. My 
bright, my little game of finding something in the Bible and looking at it, is called a get. And this get is found in at least three places. Uh, it's found in Romans chapter 16, where Paul is, is finishing up his great opus uh, to the church in Rome before he travels or plans to travel to see them. It's found in Acts chapter 19, because Erastus is a, Erastus rather, is a helper, and it's also found in the pastoral letter called 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, Erastus was the city treasurer, which was a very, very high office in Corinth. Specifically, I, I've read what this says. I mean, I can't read it, but this is what it what it says. Specifically, it says Erastus, in return for his uh, edileship, has paved this road at his own expense. That's what that says. An edile is an elected official in Rome, and an edile is in charge of municipal building projects. Here's my point: Paul had an impact on Corinth in making it to the world of Jesus because they were connected, highly connected people with connectivity who bought the idea of this movement of Jesus, right? They wanted to be a part of this of this continuation of the old story through Christ. And Paul made it happen. I think I think when I was a little kid, if I'm honest about it, I always assumed that Christians, the earliest Christians, were only the poor, and they were the 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 powerless and the people that the Romans would feed to the lions. But what we see here in Corinth is a church that is um, is remarkably sophisticated and connected with the higher echelons of government, which is another way to say that uh, God can use people with means to do great things. To whom much is given, much is expected. And so, for churches like ours, which has the which would have the resources, for instance, to put together a podcast, we also leverage our connectivity for outreach and for evangelism and for a way to try to make the world a better place. Right. So, so there's there's a place for for me. Means uh, in terms of building the kingdom of God, and Erastus and this little stone is a is a living monument to that. Well, he did have an impact, and I do believe he was a tent rep, and I do believe he had. I, you can see right here that he had connected friends, but like many other Romans, Paul too had something in common with them. He was from somewhere else, and this would affect his development and affect his conversion and affect why he traveled through all of these Roman cities uh, in, his, in his loops through the Mediterranean telling people about Jesus. It worked like this. Um, Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. We know that story is in Acts chapter 9. But what I want to suggest today is that, is that conversions rarely happen in a vacuum. And lightning bolts rarely happen unless we are beginning to have a dawning awareness of the truth around us. I'll show you another. Uh, this is a painting. I'll show you another picture. This is a picture of Stephen, the deacon. This story is told in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7. This painting is by a Florentine master named uh, Vasari in the late 16th century. I love how these Renaissance painters are attributed with the with realism, right? They're the first painters to sort of give depth to a picture and some realism to a picture. Maybe realistic in terms of a face and hands, but let me tell you, Stephen didn't wear that uh, on the day of his martyrdom. Uh, this picture here, I mean, that what Stephen's wearing looks like what a deacon would wear at St. Luke's on Easter. But here's the story. We're told in Acts chapter 6 that deacons were set aside uh, uh, for service uh, to this growing movement, this growing church. And we're told that Stephen was, quote, Greek-speaking, which means that like Paul and like so many other people living in the Roman world, he was from somewhere else. 
Stephen, like Paul, was educated. Stephen, like Paul, was connected. But Stephen had accepted a role as deacon in this in this newly formed Jesus movement. And like Saul, Paul, uh, he would um, he would be changed. Saul, not yet. Paul, not yet. But Stephen had been changed, and he was also free. Now the story continues that that Stephen would start would start speaking against the religious authorities of the day, and he would draw the attention of the of the of the same people who would who would have killed Jesus. And he he draws their ire, and a mob uh, is raised, and outside the temple walls uh, he's killed. I want to read the story to you because this is the first we see of Saul before his conversion. It's Acts chapter seven, the fifty second verse through uh, chapter eight, the first verse. I'll read it to you. Now this is the end of a long speech that Stephen makes, which which proves to be his undoing. Stephen says, Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you've become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the laws ordained by angels, and yet you've not kept it. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, he, look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears. And with a loud shout, they all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, our first meeting. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he died, and Saul approved of their killing him. And that day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Saul watched the whole thing. Saul held their coats. Um, but as I've said, conversions rarely happen in a vacuum, and I believe that Paul's process of conversion began when he saw another Roman, another Hebrew person, another person from somewhere else, another person like him, free, free to pray, free to speak the truth, free to die right, uh, a freedom that Paul could only long for. That, that empty hole inside had been filled, and I believe that Paul would want it too. And this is what would knock him off his horse on the road to Damascus. Paul would walk the rest of the world to tell people what he had discovered, which is grace. Now, in one of his letters to a church that he started in Philippi, which is up here to the north, which is where he visited before he got to Corinth, and then eventually he would write them letters to, to keep up with them. And I'll say more about letters again and again. Um, this is what he says to the church in Philippi about his resume. And this is what he learned after he, after he realized that he was more than the sum total of what he had accomplished. He was more than the sum total of what he had earned. He was more than the sum total of his earning capacity. He was more than the sum total of what his parents had given him. This is what he says to the church in Philippi, and this is why he walked. This is Philippians, it's chapter 3, the fourth verse to the seventh verse. Even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh... What he calls the flesh is, is basically our resume, the world, what we can, what we can accomplish and what we can hang our, our hats on. Even though I, too, have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, 
of the tribe of Benjamin, which means he's blue-blooded, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's an A-plus student. Yet whatever gains I had, these I've come to regard as loss because of Christ. Paul's letters were meant to be read publicly. They were meant to be read like um, a letter to the editor in the newspaper. So what Paul would tell them again and again is that we're saved, not by what we've accomplished, but simply because we are. And we're saved to be a new community for each other. We're saved in time so we could see heaven around the corner. We're saved because we could experience now our God under heaven and it can make us a new family. And so the letters would keep them connected again and again and again which is what we're going to begin to look at in this podcast, his letters to this Roman world of Corinth. I want to take just a second and look at really just one verse today, and then we'll, we'll get into it more. But it's, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and the second verse. We can see just about everything he wants to say in one pregnant verse, and it goes like this. This is 1 Corinthians 1 uh, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He calls them saints. He travels the world to call people to be saints, to call them into sainthood. Now, when he says saints, he doesn't mean stained glass saints. We've done that to the word. We've ruined the word in that way. Rather, he just just asks them to be different in the way that God asked Abraham to be different the way that God asked his family to be different, the way that God asked his people to be different again and again, they would be grafted onto this old story, this never-ending quest of God revealing God's priorities to us and asking us to be different from the world around us, to leave the city behind and become a new city, a new community, a new family. And this is going to take work, and this is what we'll see. And while we've saved all these years, Paul's two letters that we have in existence, probably four were written, two letters uh, to the Corinthians because it would take work to be different this way. It would take work for people living in a world with a pecking order. Looks like our world. It would take work uh, for, for people who are urban and sophisticated to take on a rural Galilean farmer's religion. In Corinth, they would call uh, people not from the city rustics or pagans. That's where the word actually comes from. Shepherds in Corinth were actually despised. So for Jesus to be called the good shepherd would be nonsensical to them at first. They would have to be retrained. And this is another something that we see in this relationship of Paul as he trains them to see the world in a new way, to be different the way that God asks us to be different. Corinth was a place of upward mobility. That's why you moved there. That's why you were attracted to a place of commerce and wealth and sophistication and diversity. And yet the stories of Jesus are downward mobility, where the God of the cosmos takes the place of a slave. No, it would cost them to be different in this way when they run into their neighbors and their friends in this highly packed, gossiping little world when they suddenly stop doing Roman things and start doing things that would eventually be known as Christian there's a little postscript to this story that I want to tell you that if we end the lesson here, to be different the way the Bible asks us to be different, um, Paul's letters would end up just being that. They would be letters. The Bible that they had in the first century would be the Hebrew Scriptures and then stories that they told about Jesus and then these public letters that they saved. They were never meant to be doctrine. They were never meant to be religious tracts. They were never meant to be timeless theology. 
Rather, they were simply a snapshot of a relationship between a man who discovered grace and a man who shared grace and changed the world. A man with connected friends, a man with the ability and the charisma to start a movement in the Roman world and make it the world of Jesus. Now, I say this because later Romans would do something else. You know, the, the Bema that I showed you earlier, the get, right, where Paul stood before the proconsul uh, Gallio, the reason why we know that's the place is because in the 4th century, later Romans would build a church on top of it, and a really nice one. You know, we've, if we've seen anything in the last episodes of our podcast with the temple and with this never-ending cycle of people with their relationship with God, it's awfully common to confuse means with ends. It's common to confuse means with ends. And what I'm trying to say is it's common to turn something loving and free that Stephen experienced into, into something doctrinal, something written down, a checked box, a religion, in the case of First and Second Corinthians, uh, the Christian church turned those two books into a catechism for centuries. And it was never meant to be that. Rather, Paul traveled the world and in 51 landed in this very, very busy place, and he stayed for 18 months to show them how to live a new ethic, to show them how to live the two greatest commandments, love of God, love of neighbor, and to transform this very Roman world into the world of Jesus. And we can too. We can transform our workplace, our homes, our communities, our churches, our world into the same world of the rocks and hills and water of Galilee. We too can live in the world of Jesus. And so the question I have for us today is, where do you find Jesus in your world? Let's keep it going as we uh, look at the world of Corinth and the world of Jesus. Thank you, guys.